Most of our sermon this morning is going to come from 1 Peter chapter 3. We will be in a couple other places here and there, but if you're going to turn somewhere and you're not quick to find various other verses, I suggest you find your way to 1 Peter chapter 3. But I wanted to preach about baptism this morning because we're going to be baptizing some people today. John came baptizing before the ministry of Jesus began, as you recall. The baptism of John in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5 says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him, that's John, and were baptized by him in the Jordan and confessing their sins. And, and to give you an idea of what most believed they were doing when they were coming to be baptized, you'll remember the great evangelistic words of John in the next verse where John said, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. In other words, people were coming to be baptized because they believed that the kingdom of God was imminently upon them. And Lord Jesus called this particular group of people a brood of vipers because of their hypocrisies, because of their serpent-like cunning. And it's obvious that they really weren't coming out to be baptized because they believed that God was unhappy with them. They were, they were coming for other reasons. But baptism is a thing that that literally drew hundreds and hundreds of people out of the countryside. They believed the preaching of John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So their coming to him was a response to him and a response to his preaching. And they came to him confessing their sins and they were baptized by him. Even John baptized Jesus Christ, which John didn't think was quite right. John thought it should be the other way around. The Lord Jesus said, No, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. You will baptize me. And the Lord Jesus, as you probably all recall, in the end of the book of Matthew or in the end of the book of Mark, the Lord Jesus commands Christians to go and make disciples. He makes that command based on the fact that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Christ. And he says, go and make disciples. Or maybe more accurately, it says, as you are going, make disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is something done in the name of the triune God. And interestingly, and this is uh, something for you to ponder, we're going to ask some questions and and really think a little bit more deeply about baptism this morning. The thief who was saved on the cross as he died next to the Lord Jesus, he was told he would be with Jesus that day in paradise. Right? He was saved and forgiven, and never baptized. And so, 
When we look at 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, we're going to look at one little verse in isolation here for a second. 1 Peter 3, 21. It says, There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. There's an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter says, there is an antitype which saves us, baptism. And so I think a lot of people are inclined to believe that baptism is what saves you. You may have thought that at some time in the past. You maybe are sort of convinced that that's true today. And we're going to begin pondering on this question. Baptism saves? Does baptism save? And in some ways, maybe you're going to say, well, it says it right there, Mike. Are you going to tell me that's not what it says? Well, consider with me. God himself is said to save us, 1 Timothy 4.10. He's a savior of all men. I'm going to list off some passages of scripture that will inform you and me what the scripture says about where does salvation come from. 1 Timothy 4.10. God is the savior of all men, especially them who believe. Underline that part of the verse if you're running around and looking at these verses, especially of them who believe. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, it is by grace you are saved. There's another source or cause of salvation. Christ himself is said to save those who are saved. His name is Savior, is it not? His name is Savior. The blood of Christ is said to save us. We we are given redemption through his blood. And the resurrection of Christ is said to save us, even. Ephesians 1.7 or Romans 5.10, we're saved by his life. We're saved by by his life. In his life, because he lives, we're saved. The Holy Spirit is said to save us in Titus 3.5. I'm just racing through these on purpose. I want you to hear these phrases that you have read or you've heard in the scripture. There are multiple attestations to where salvation comes from. What is the source of salvation? The gospel is said to save men. The words that Peter preached to Cornelius and his family. He said, these these are these words. Believe these words and you and your family will be saved. Faith is how someone is saved. It is by grace. Or it is by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It is by grace you are saved through faith. And where does faith come from? Is there a little faith factory in your head or in your heart? No, actually, Paul spares us any such nonsense. And he says, it is by grace you are saved through faith and this not of yourselves. 
You couldn't save yourself if you tried. You couldn't invent faith if you tried. You couldn't manufacture faith if you tried. If you have faith and trust in the righteousness of Christ today, it is because of God's grace through faith. Even the Lord Jesus said on several occasions, Thy faith has saved thee. Men are saved by confession of the truth, is what it says in Romans 10. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you shall be saved. And men are said to be saved by baptism in connection with their faith. Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So how do we make sense of Peter's statement? Baptism now saves you, he says. We've listed a minimum of ten references to different biblical attestations of of how someone is going to be saved. And and it would be foolish for any one of us to say, well, it's baptism that, that makes you saved. So what does Peter mean when he says that? Baptism can't save you, as a matter of fact. Baptism can't save you. Don't think that baptism can save you. When you're talking with someone who is unsure of their salvation, or maybe you're unsure of their salvation, and oftentimes someone will say, well, I was baptized. Or maybe they'll say, Johnny was baptized. Baptism can't save somebody. And I believe we'll see that clearly in this passage as we study this a little bit. If you look back at 1 Peter chapter 3 again, verse 18 touches on one of the major themes in Peter's letter. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. What's going on there in, in verse 20 is, there was a time, there once was a time, a long time ago, and God patiently waited patiently, while... These people were disobedient. When Peter is speaking about this, he's saying there once was a time when God's patience patiently waited. And at the moment when Peter is speaking, where are those people who knew Noah and heard Noah's preaching? Where are they? They're in hell. So there's a, this is a tricky passage to read and to understand here. But these are people who, when they heard Noah preaching, they were not spirits. But now at this time when Peter writes, they are spirits. They formerly were disobedient. Now they're suffering. And there in the middle of verse 20, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. 
There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter brings us to this place in the history of mankind where Noah was a preacher of righteousness. God told Noah how to build an ark. Noah and his wife and his children and his children's spouse, as spouses, eight people, or as Peter says, eight souls saved through water, and he says, and an antitype now saves. Baptism, and if you look carefully at the passage, It's not baptism in isolation. It's actually baptism. And then in the middle of verse 21, you see where it says, but the answer? Baptism. Not the removal of filth, but the answer. This is how we're going to understand this passage. The answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism is an answer. When it uses the word antitype here in this passage, what we studied a year or so ago when we were studying the relationship between type and antitype, the best picture I think I can give you of the relationship between type and antitype is the thing, like a person or a tree or a building, and then the shadow it casts if there is light shined on it. So when you look at the shadow, that's a type. Well, what is the anti-type? It's the thing that made the shadow. There's a relationship between type and anti-type. It's a pair of Greek words, tupos and anti-tupos. And all all we're to recognize is that there's a tight correlation between these two things. And so Peter is teaching us there is a correlation between this story of Noah and the eight and the eight souls saved through water is what Peter mentions for us in in his telling us of the, the correlation here. Water is the common symbol between these two things. Baptism and Noah's eight Souls saved through water. Water is the common thing in these two things. So what is water? What is water to Noah and all the people who lived in Noah's day? Water is judgment. What's another word we might give for judgment? What is the wage of sin? Death. What is water? Water is death. That's why Romans 6 in verse 3 says, You were buried with him through baptism. So the two things that, that, that bring these stories together here as Peter is telling us about this thing is that water is judgment and water is a means of death. Why didn't Noah die? Why didn't Noah and his eight die? God gave him a way to escape judgment a way that could be attained only by Noah's faith. How did Noah demonstrate faith? He believed the instructions given to him. He believed God's pronouncement of wrath, which would be death, and he built an ark, and he got in the ark. They didn't die in judgment because they 
heard God's word and they believed God's word and they got in the ark. Does a Christian have an ark? You do. What is the ark of a Christian? Christ. Jesus Christ is the ark. How does a Christian prepare for the waters of judgment? Now, I'm not... I'm not teaching or implying that the judgment of the world is going to come in the flood because actually God promised that he would never judge the world again that way after Noah's time. And his seal of that promise is the rainbow. So I'm using this term figuratively as in a judgment comes in the future of the world. This world comes to an end. Noah's age was ended in a flood of judgment that killed millions of people. Millions and millions of people were killed in the flood. So these are the correlations between these two things. When a man or a woman in this life, while he lives, when he anticipates judgment because he knows the holiness of God, he knows the righteousness of God, he anticipates judgment. God is holy and righteous and just. And a man knows that he faces judgment at the end of his life. Is it the point of man to die once and then face a judgment? We know when we get to the end, we face judgment. What does a person need to be in? How does a person get in the ark. Well, the gospel, the gospel is how you become aware of what the ark is. It is Christ Jesus the Lord. You must put on Christ. You must repent of your sin and put your hope and your faith in Christ, not only for his enduring life, that is, death can't hold. Christ, and the proof of that is the fact that Christ rises from the dead. But Christ also possesses perfect righteousness. You must face your Creator on the day of judgment with perfect righteousness if you wish to have eternal life. You have none. You have none. Even if you're just a, a little sinner, even if your sins are little white lies. And little greedy thoughts. And little adulterous moments in your heart. And, and little tiny covetous experiences. All of these things are only fruit of the fact that you are a sin factory. You can't stop producing the sins that prove you're worthy of the death that comes at the end of this age. How does a person leave the eminent death of judgment and find security. How does a person do that? How do you get in the ark? You repent of your sin and you put your trust and your hope in the righteous one who cannot be killed. What do you do when your weakness wants to give up or men threaten you to stop living like or speaking like Christ. What do you do when you're weak? What do you do when you feel fear? You listen to the gospel and you arm your conscience with the truth of the gospel. And that's what Peter's passage is about. What do you do when you're weak? 
What do you do if you've never even trusted Christ? What do you do? And, and you're afraid to go into Christ because you know Christians are mocked for their testimony. You know Christians are mocked for their belief about protection of the unborn or about the manhood of manness and the womanhood of womanness. We believe in the created order of the creation. And some people are afraid to accept Christ because if, if you really believe in Christ, you will be mocked. You will be ostracized. Well, what do you do when men threaten in this way? Or what do you do when your own cowardice threatens you this way? You listen to the gospel and you arm your conscience Let me explain how Peter has helped us to do this. What is the conscience? The conscience is what comforts a man in his life and in his choices, or it condemns and corrects him. Your conscience is that invisible part of your mind or of your soul. I don't know where it lives, but when you do something wrong with a good conscience, your conscience tells you, watch your mouth. Or your conscience tells you you're cheating. Or your conscience tells you wherever it is you have erred. Now a conscience can be seared. A a conscience can be slowly turned off if you get used to denying your conscience. So conscience needs to be properly formed and nurtured and, and developed and maintained by regular time in God's Word and listening to good biblical preaching and, and your faithfulness to be in God's Word and to be soft to God's Word. A conscience is something that can be seared and hardened and turned away from God, but your conscience is given to you so that you will respond to what's true. You will respond appropriately to what's right and, and you will choose What is right because your conscience fears and loves God. That's what a conscience does. So if you'll go with me now to verse 13 in the same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. You'll get a little better flavor of what Peter is talking about here in this chapter. He says, Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? For the most part, we would think nobody, right? If you're doing what is good, who will harm you? Who will complain about that? Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Listen to what he says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In other words, you must reckon God is number one in your hearts. He is always number one. He is always eminent. He is always supreme. You set him apart in your heart, which means, how do they put it? I I act before, I sing before, I speak before, I live before an audience of one. But if you're a man pleaser, you sometimes get confused who number one is. If you fear man and if you're a man pleaser, you will deviate in who is sanctified in your heart. But Peter has simply told us here, sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And don't lie about 
why you're doing what you're doing. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. That's what he's saying here. Do it with meekness and fear. Verse 16, having a good conscience. Having a good conscience. That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Peter is preaching and teaching to people who are struggling with persecution, struggling with the trial of living out the ramifications of their trust and belief in Christ. They're suffering for it. They're tempted to fear. But what does Peter have to say about Christians who are thinking about suffering? Look at verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through the water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. He is telling you, follow the conscience of a man who has set God apart in his heart. Christian, follow the conscience of a man whose God is number one. This is how you stand. This is how you live through. This is how you endure this kind of thing. The Spirit by Peter is strengthening you by encouraging you to have a true conscience, by exhorting you to follow your conscience. He's speaking to us about what baptism has done for the conscience. If you are learning to follow and have a soft conscience toward God, he's teaching you and I what does baptism do to help and strengthen the conscience. It is not, baptism is not for its power to wash away sin. He says that right here in the passage. It's not because it's going to wash away some filth. So when we look at verse 21 again, there is an antitype which saves us, baptism. Okay, how how is Peter, how how does baptism save me? Well, immediately, it's not the removal of filth from the flesh. It's not a physical thing that it does to you. It's not a thing that that somehow changes the, the dirty to the clean. That's not what's happening, he says. But the answer of a good conscience Baptism does something to the conscience. Baptism is an answer of the conscience toward God. And then he goes on and he clarifies it a little bit more. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone in heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. So baptism serves as a good answer to God 
is what he says. So what is the conscience itself? What is the conscience resting in? What is the conscience saying? What is the conscience, uh, what is the substance being uh, reinforced in the conscience by baptism here? Well, Galatians 2.20 and Romans 6.3, I believe will help us realize that baptism saves by giving an answer for enduring faith. Baptism saves by giving an answer for enduring faith. Galatians 2.20 is a passage you guys know. I've been crucified with Christ. Now, have any of you guys ever been nailed on a cross? No. But Galatians 2.20 says you have been crucified with Christ. This means you have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live. You died with Christ. You crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You are dead if you are in Christ. Christ is alive if you are in Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Baptism is teaching us something about our answer for enduring in faith. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Look at Romans 6, 3 or 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Six. I think it's just four. It's for therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Peter says baptism speaks an answer. Or Peter says a good conscience toward God through the resurrection. Baptism is an answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection. Baptism speaks. That's what a good answer is. It's speaking. It is an answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism says, if we stay in the context of what Peter just told us here, the death of Christ is temporary. The death of Christ is temporary. Are you suffering? Are you feeling fearful about walking with Christ? Are you fearful about living the life of Christ? It is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. Is that fearful? Is that becoming too much for you to bear? What he says is the death of Christ is temporary. The conscience of the Christian says, I am going to walk with him. Christ suffered. I will suffer. The death of Christ is Temporary. Baptism is a it's a witness and a testimony. In other words, it tells you something. How does baptism save you? It preaches to you. It says something to you. It gives another answer to the conscience. They killed him. They killed Christ. The suffering and persecution of Christ went all the way to Christ's death. 
They killed him. But he was right. And God rewarded him. The end of the passage there in in 1 Peter 3 talks about how Christ is exalted when he is risen. And what his authority is when he is risen. And so when the pains and the trials of walking with Christ, they push on you and tempt you to betray your conscience. When you want to disobey and when you want to ignore, baptism speaks strong words of salvation. And baptism says that Christ rose from the grave. Walking in his death and walking in difficulty and trial is right. Because that is the life that Christ lived. And that is the life that when Christ died, he was born again to resurrection. So walking in his death and facing your trials and difficulties and being faithful to your Lord because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ is right. Baptism speaks to your conscience. It speaks a word to your conscience. So may your conscience be strengthened toward God and in his son by this word from baptism. Material baptism can't save you, can it? It cannot. What saves you? Faith in the crucified and risen Christ. What compels you day by day? What gives you faith to live a life of faith day by day? Both the death and the life of Christ. The conscience must not forget that the difficult life of living and walking with Christ, the difficult life of speaking truth and love, is in a sense death to yourself. If you are alive to yourself, you will only say things that make people love you. If you live for yourself, you will only live for yourself, only say things that make people do good things to you. But the Lord Jesus says, if you love your life, you will lose it for my sake. Now when you're tempted to forget that, when you're tempted to abandon that, It's because your life is hard and people are mad at you and people disagree with you for your narrow opinions, for your gospel opinions, for your confidence in gospel truth, narrow way salvation. They'll mock you for holding such opinions. The conscience mustn't forget that the difficult life of living and speaking, the life of Christ, ends in resurrection with Christ. This life ends in resurrection with Christ. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 10, 38, 39. It says, Now the just shall live by faith. You can replace righteous. Righteousness and justice are very, very, very similar words in Greek. The just shall live by faith. That means believing everything that Christ has said is true. It means believing everything the prophets have said is true. The just will live by faith. You believe what they said. You order your life by what they said. The just will live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. It's a great, great passage. 
of hope in the book of Hebrews. We are not those who shrink back to perdition. Or in other words, if you deny the Lord, the Lord says he will deny you. Here what we read about in Hebrews, it says the righteous will live by faith, but if anyone draws back, if anyone turns away, if anyone denies him, my soul has no pleasure in him. Look at verse 39. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. We don't stop believing. Why? Because he rose from the grave. We don't stop believing, brothers and sisters. Baptism gives you a witness and a testimony. Not only did Christ Jesus die, but he rose again to eternal, exalted, glorious life. That is how baptism saves you, by giving an answer to your conscience. As we get ready to take communion together today, it's a great, great Sunday to uh, be thinking about the elements of, of communion and our memory, our knowledge of the death and the life of the Lord Jesus. We're going to read from our passage here in 1 Corinthians 11, 